Assalamualaikum, good evening Welcome back to another edition of our Meditation question and answer session I'm all alone here now at this Very big, very empty house So That may mean that I don't do any more videos, recorded videos, because there's no one here to record them. But I can still do these online Q&A sessions. And if there's anyone who wants to come and live in this big empty house and help, we need a cook, really. If we have a cook, then we can have meditators to cook uh, for, for them to cook. The other thing is, we now have a Q&A site. I wonder if I can pull that up. Can you pull that up? Unexpected. Let me try and pull it up. Oh, is that you or me? Yeah, there it is. Oh, good. Nice work. So uh, we, one of the volunteers or a group of volunteers have installed this software on our site that lets people ask and answer questions. So it won't just be me answering the questions. Though I will be answering questions. I was just answering one before we started. Did I finish it? I think I did end up. Oh, maybe I didn't end up finishing it. Is that refreshed? Because I thought I answered one of those. Did I end up... What happened to my answer? I just look at this. I think I lost my answer somehow. Hmm. I just answered one of those questions and I think I just lost the answer. Okay, but anyway, so I'll be answering questions there and other people will be answering questions. You're welcome to help out because a lot of the times an a question is easily answered by anyone who is familiar with the practice or with the tradition which makes it easier and easier all around more it facilitates quicker answers and the way it's set up it facilitates good answers you find if you try to use this platform that it inclines people to put more quality in their answers it gives feedback on the quality of answers helps to filter out uh, problematic answers, problematic questions. And so if we use it, if we put it to use, it could be a real asset for the community. Ask.sirimangalo.org So if you find that your questions aren't being answered here, or you didn't have time to make the broadcast, you're welcome to ask them there. Maybe people can at the very least direct you to a video that answers your question. But of course you're welcome to come to these sessions. We'll try to have one every Wednesday at 8 p.m. and every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. So if you're here now with us live, Close your eyes, get in a mindful state of mind, 
And if you have questions, open your eyes, type the question mindfully, watching for spelling and grammar errors, being respectful to the person asking the question, the person reading the question for you, Shraddha here. Be respectful to me who has to answer them. Just in terms of showing that you have a sincerity and a good intention in answering and asking the question. You're not take you're taking this seriously. And if you are, then we're happy to answer your questions. And then you can close your eyes and wait for the answer. Go back to the mindful state of mind. Are you ready for a question? We have a few. How can we develop a consistent and stable meditation practice? I think one of the most important parts to that is association with people who have a consistent and stable meditation practice closer you are associated with others who are also consistently meditating the more likely you are to develop it yourself or the more quickly you will develop it yourself there's no easy answer to this question it's a very good question but it's not an easy one to answer Basically, learn about and practice all the many things the Buddha taught. There's so many things you can practice. And by practice, I don't mean meditation. I mean all the other stuff like being charitable, being ethical, being kind to others, having kind thoughts, being humble, being content with basic necessities having right speech, right action, right livelihood. There's so many ways to answer it. And it really is, in many ways, it, it's a big part of everything the Buddha was trying to teach. Right? It's such a general question that it encompasses everything. So read and study and put into practice all the things, or many of the things anyway, the, the core things the Buddha taught. Hi, Monte. I know it's silly, but I'm really afraid of the idea of demonic beings coming to take me in my sleep. Any advice? All fear is, is all fear is irrational. Some of it's just more irrational than others. Something seems glaringly irrational to someone, but you have to recognize that about fear in general because if your solution is to try and differentiate that fear from other fear and say this fear is irrational because of the thing that I'm being afraid of it's not really that effective um, because the mind clings to concepts you have to change the way you look at it and, and try and understand fear as a reality the best way to overcome fear is not to tell your teach yourself that this thing is wrong to fear but that fear itself is not important not useful not useful because really the idea of demonic beings coming to take you in your sleep is 
not that different from uh, kidnappers coming to take you in your sleep, right? Psychologically, theory, you know, in terms of conceptually, conceptually, it's not that much different. It's just that we don't believe in demons. That's all. But that part is quite secondary and and unimportant, inconsequential. What's what's important here is fear of being kidnapped, which relates to to uh, clinging to self, desire to be safe and have all of the experiences that you're familiar with and aversion towards new experiences like kidnapping. It's a very sort of deep and profound radical idea, but eventually you come to see everything as experiences, as as merely experiences. You have a more objective and truth-based or reality-based perspective. And so the idea of being afraid doesn't make any sense anymore. And of course the way you do that is, well, we outline it in the book on how to meditate. It's the practice of mindfulness. You're just saying to yourself, afraid, afraid. The short answer would be that. Just say to yourself, afraid, afraid. But that knowledge of theory is important to help cultivate right view. Right view is, is a good and important support for the practice. So understanding what we're doing, why we're doing what we're doing, and what is the result of what we're doing is important. It's not to make you stop believing in demons. It's help you, to help you understand that demons aren't a thing that can exist. Neither are you. I observe that when patience runs out, I experience a limited state in which I feel an explosion growing internally. Like, I can't take it anymore. How would you call it? I'm noting enough. Stop. So noting enough and stop is not really noting. That's commanding, which is a very different thing, a very dangerous thing, in fact, because it increases the inclination or the, the the desire to control, the sense of control, the sense of self. So you have to note rather how you feel over, overwhelmed. So overwhelmed is a common thing to say. You're just feeling the explosions, it's feeling... How you feel about it is overwhelmed or afraid or worried or so on. You know, it's not called enough or stop. That's not calling. You're not trying to find what it's called there. You're trying to stop it. You're trying to give it a quality that it doesn't have. Patience runs out, you have to cultivate more patience. What should I focus on while meditating if I'm having a hard time breathing? Well, you'd focus on that feeling of having a hard time breathing, the tension or the 
this uh, the, the feeling of the unpleasant feeling or you would note the emotion related to it stress or worry or disliking After meditation, I feel relatively aligned. However, after engaging with non-meditators, I feel less aligned. Any tips on maintaining mindfulness while, while connecting with others? Well, try and connect not so much to people who are not meditating, of course, but it's not a great answer because it's not always possible. It's often not possible. I think the short-term answer is really to to accept that that's a part of your practice, that you're going to be thrown off balance by people and to be prepared to bring yourself back into balance, to work to cultivate mindfulness again when you're more able to do it. But of course, ultimately, you have to train to to be mindful, even when surrounded by people. One one big part of that is again changing your perspective from conceptual reality to ultimate reality, so that you're seeing them less as people and more as experiences. We have too much. We we put too much energy into concepts, especially people as concepts. When, when we meet a person, we think of them as a person and we immediately have this, we, we fall into this bad and bad and uh, problematic pattern of behavior of trying to impress them, trying to humor them, trying to manipulate them. All of this is this artificial pattern of behavior that we've developed. It can be varying degrees of good or bad, but it's ultimately pretty problem, pretty harmful, as you can see. So if you try and treat people like experiences, you'll get better at being present and being peaceful and being calm and kind and happy mindful how does one be mindful while eating well that one's pretty easy actually eating can be i mean okay one of the hardest parts of being mindful when eating is the craving and the desire. It does make it very hard in the beginning, but it's not really that hard once you practice it. It's just we're out of practice or we we have deeply ingrained patterns of behavior when we do things like eating that we have to retrain ourselves in. So the, the retraining is about retraining how your mind perceives it and approaches it. So you start, when you see the food, you say seeing if you crave it, craving or liking, when you put the food in your mouth, placing, when you eat, when you chew the food, chewing, chewing, when you swallow the food, swallowing, being mindful of all those, all the parts of eating. It's good to think of eating as a meditation practice. We have these reflections that we do before we eat, to get ourselves in a meditative state and then uh, take it as a meditation session eating meditation It'd be very helpful to cultivate those sorts of habits and if you haven't read the booklet maybe that will help 
I know it's not complete and it doesn't have detailed information, but it gives you the basic outline of how to note things, why to note things perhaps. The next two questions are by different people, but about relating to other people. So I'll ask them together. I don't interact much with others, as I often don't enjoy it, yet I sometimes feel lonely. Should I force myself to interact with others more? I know Sangha is important in Buddhism, so maybe I should. Well, the thing about Sangha is it doesn't really require or in, involve interaction. It involves community and association. But a big part of that community is leaving each other alone, providing each other with the space and the, the support for solitary meditation. It's not about meditating together, it's about not bothering each other when you're meditating and when you're meditating and making sure other people don't bother you as well creating a community of people who leave each other alone, basically. Not not entirely. No, there is interaction. There should be, especially with teachers and students. There should be discussion about Dhamma from time to time. But it's not so much about all of that as it is about the support and the constant reminder that you give each other of, of what's important. And and that has nothing to do, of course, with being lonely. We don't interact with other Sangha members because we're lonely. If you do, that's a problem, even for monks. So feeling lonely is just a meditation object that you have to be mindful of and learn to see clearly so that you free yourself from the inclination to get lonely, to crave for a company. You see, loneliness isn't really a thing. It, uh, loneliness is the disliking of the idea that you're alone, which is based on the craving for whatever it is that company or interaction with others gives you. But it's still just liking and disliking. So yeah, the questions were um, questions we're looking for and we're inclined to answer here. Questions that can answer af affirmative in regards to in response to the question: Does this question have some importance for the meditator? Will an answer to this question help the person asking better practice? or come to practice the, the path leading to cessation of suffering. So we're not really interested in theoretical questions, philosophical questions, curiosity questions, absolutely, is sort of on the lower level. If, it's, if we can see it's just you're curious about something, we'll probably not answer it. If you don't have questions, you don't have to go looking for them. Just sit quietly and meditate with us. I think that I think it should be clear that the best the best thing is not someone asking a question. The best thing is someone who doesn't need to ask questions. So what we should all be striving for is not to have better questions, but not have any questions at all. Not just because we're indifferent, of course, but because we've gotten to the point where we clearly see the path for ourselves.
more you practice, the more common it is for your questions to be answered by the practice or by simply cultivating a mindful state. Noting, wanting, there's also the sensory memory of what I want. The more I want something, more dominating is the memory. Like someone screaming it and threatening to torture me horribly. What to do? I don't really understand. Do you understand this question? I mean, I guess taking I it at face value. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think um, the wanting is very strong and they feel tortured by it. And I think they're asking what to do about it as they're noticing wanting. Oh, so they're not talking about memory of someone screaming and threatening to torture them horribly. I think that's just a, an analogy. The memory something. of what I want is in the background while they're saying one, while they're noting wanting. And it's like a person screaming at them. They're just using a simile. Mm. That's a good simile. Well, if that's the case, and it looks like it is, then, then aptly put. And the sensory memory, although your grammar could use a little work, but you may not be an English speaker. Um, this th There is both the wanting and the sensory memory of what you want, and both of them are separate objects. Whichever is clearest, just note that one. It doesn't really matter. The noting isn't magic. It doesn't make that thing suddenly become clear. Noting is a tool which helps to evoke and condition your states of, of mind. So by using the tool, you'll find yourself more clear of mind. So if you note one thing, you'll be clear, you'll see other things clearer as well. That's an important point. Don't worry about noting everything. Just use it as a training tool to bring the mind to a, It's like lifting weights isn't the muscles. Lifting weights builds the muscles. It's not like if you lift the weights, you get to take them home with you. But when you lift the weights, your muscles increase so that lifting other weight, lifting other heavy things becomes easier, you see. That's how training works. You don't lift weights so that you can lift weights. And you don't note as the end goal. The end goal is not to note everything. The end goal is to see things clearly, which comes from practices like noting. Just as big muscles come from things like weightlifting. I struggle with resistance to change. I've been practicing three years, but I feel like I've let go of nothing. I conceptually see the truth of impermanence, but some change still feels unacceptable. Well, I guess the question is any advice? I don't know, have you practiced in this tradition? That's the first question. If you haven't, I recommend read our booklet, maybe do an at-home course. We still have these at-home courses, and 
slots are freeing up as people finish the course, so I don't see new people joining on, which I guess is understandable, but if you are interested, there are slots open, something you should take advantage of if you're interested in it. So that might be something I'd recommend for this person. I don't know if you've done our at-home course, but it might be something you're interested in doing. If you feel like you've let go of nothing, well, that's discouraging to hear. Um, I think sometimes people say that and, and they mislead themselves when they do because if they sit back and and reflect honestly, they see that they actually have improved. And it's hard to imagine someone practicing mindfulness for three years and not gaining anything from it. But why it often comes up, I think, is because emotions can be very strong at times. And when emotions are very strong, you you identify with those. You think of them as you and, and you forget about all the times when you weren't so intensely clingy. So it, it's, an, it's the, the, the surprise that comes from not expecting to still be able to give rise to such intense reactions. And that's not really how meditation works. It's not magic like that. The first thing it does is help you to see your problems. And seeing your problems is half the battle. Because that's what begins the long and arduous process of whittling away at them, changing your habits. Before you can change them for the better, you have to know what better means. Many people don't even get to that level, I think. It's a very high and and uh, noble goal just to be able to know what the problem is and what the solution is. that people don't get to because we're because it really isn't about problems and solutions it's about seeing things clearly it's about realizing that seeing things as problems is the problem and the solution is to stop seeing things stop looking for solutions really it's a very hard thing to see i mean it's no it's not just that what makes it hard it's hard because it takes a lot of work it's hard because it requires you to let go requires you to have objectivity, requires a state of perfect clarity of mind, it requires the experience of what we call Nibbana, the actual release from suffering, because only once you've seen it do you know then what, for sure what to aim for. If you've never experienced it, then you still don't have a perfect knowledge of what to look for, what to aim for. So strive for that first, really, the, the clear awareness of things as they are and the nature of things, good and bad and so on, harmful, helpful, as opposed to trying to let go of things. As far another thing I could say is in, as far as struggling with resistance to change, the struggling with it is part of the process. It's part of the practice. I mean, it's a useful realization that it's stressful, that change, resistance to to change is stressful. Uh, that change is something that is stressful. That we are clinging to stability. So the process is really about seeing what you're seeing again and again and again until you get this sort of ennui that you're experiencing, really. I've been practicing for three years. When will it stop? Well, that's potentially part of the solution, getting bored of it. Ennui, I think, is the word. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly.
Sometimes when I try and bring my focus back to the breath, I feel feel a bit like a child having a temper tantrum on the inside. What does this mean? I guess a better question would have been any advice. So I'm not sure if you're practicing in our tradition because we don't generally talk about it as being the breath but sometimes people use that. We're actually focused on the stomach rising and falling. So you don't really have to force your mind back to the stomach. It's where you come when there's nothing... when when. When you've noted what there is to note, so try and note things until the mind is able to let go of them or willing to let go of them, and then then bring the mind back to the rising and falling. Try and note those feelings of attempt or tantrum you're upset or frustrated, the, the mind is clinging to those things, try and note that as well. It doesn't mean anything, it just means those things exist. I learned to meditate with you, but because of that, I'm used to meditating in English. Should I meditate in my native language instead? Generally, yes. Yeah, I wouldn't use English if it's not your native language. Don't put too much emphasis on the words. They're not the point. The point is the qualities of mind that they evoke. So using native language is useful because your attention is less focused on the words as a result. Um, there was just a comment that uh, the at-home courses are confusing because of time zones. And uh, I just wanted to mention that the next uh, MedPlus update that comes will have both your time zone and Monte's time zone, so maybe that will be helpful. So don't let that discourage you from signing up for at-home course. This question I didn't understand. When the practice becomes very thin, barely there, passing away merely as it arises, barely distinguishable, how to practice here? Well, barely distinguishable is still distinguishable, right? So you can still distinguish it. But you can also note that state and note the awareness of it, knowing or aware. When you're aware that it's become as you describe it. There might also be some other quality of mind that you're not paying attention to, like calm is often associated with this sort of state.
how does one be mindful about physical illness and get free from it? It's very hard for me. Any advice? I don't know. Have you, have you read the booklet on how to meditate? That's where I would start. If you have, then I'd recommend doing the at-home meditation course. There's nothing particularly I can particular I can say about physical illness. Maybe that there's the psychological aspect as well of thinking that you're ill and reacting to that and feeling depressed or upset or disliking towards it. But ultimately, it's just a fairly core part of meditation practice to note physical and mental qualities. We're not trying to get free from things, so I have to realign your, your uh, direction of the mind to be more focused on seeing things clearly. When you see things clearly, freedom comes from comes by itself. What can I do when I can't bear the difficult emotion that I'm noting? You can change postures, that's often a good solution for difficult emotions. Ultimately you'll have to note it. I mean one thing about not being able to bear things is that that as well is a state of mind. There's no, there's no emotion, I mean it's a reaction to say that or it's an interpretation to say that this is unbearable. It doesn't really mean anything to say that something's unbearable. You've just come to a conclusion. You've reacted in a certain way. You've said, this is unbearable. And you've done that. And you, you didn't have to do that. It's a qual it's a value judgment. And, and that it's difficult to see, but as you practice, you... You get to the point where even pain that might kill you can be an object of mindfulness. Or any emotions, strong anger, strong greed, they're still just greed, they're still just anger, so you can still note them. There really isn't a point that you can't can't bear something until you decide that you can't. So in the beginning, yes, changing postures is a useful way of uh, mollifying those emotions. Another one is cultivating other types of meditation for extreme emotions. If it's lust, you can focus on the foulness of the body. If it's greed, or if it's anger, you can focus on uh, friendliness cultivating friendly thoughts towards others. And we judge things. And we judge our judgments as well. They're very judgmental. One day I'm going back to some of the questions that I skipped earlier. This is about the precepts. Should I swat or kill pests such as mosquitoes and flies when meditating? Or should I send love and compassion? You should never swat or kill anything. 
Not if it's sentient. So we have a few questions about finding teachers. Must I find a guru or a teacher while on the spiritual path? That's really helpful. Yes, the answer is pretty much yes. It's not technically yes, but practically it's the yes. Without a teacher, you have to do a lot of theoretical learning on your own. Or else, it's, because if you don't, it's very easy to get on the wrong path. It's much easier to teach someone than it is to practice, because it's much easier to see someone else's faults than your own. Keep that in mind when you think, uh, how can I find a good teacher? It would have to be someone who's perfect. It really wouldn't. Have to be someone who's well versed in the practice, but often even just finding a friend who also practices. That's why the Buddha called them a good friend. A good friend, a giver of meditation. Because so it doesn't have to be someone it doesn't have to be the Buddha. It just really should be someone who's versed in the Buddha's teaching and competent so that they can give you the basics set you in the right direction and keep you on track that's a big part of one's role as a teacher is keeping the students on track and that's pretty easy to do from outside relatively one of the big problems with teachers I think is that they can often I mean I, don't, I think this is just something I've seen from people training to become teachers or you know, teachers at our monastery in Thailand is that they often try to teach too much. Someone, and this is why calling yourself a teacher is really dangerous, problematic, something to avoid. Avoid wanting to be a teacher, avoid trying to be a teacher, avoid setting yourself up as a teacher. Because it, it, it creates something. It creates something that wasn't there before. The person who teaches just the way the Buddha described it, a fr good friend, a giver of meditation, that's it. Right, they've been a good friend, they've given me the meditation, time to go practice. Time to go find the truth from myself. You don't find the truth from the teacher. This question, I guess, you already answered right now. Is there a disadvantage in having a trained Upasaka as a meditation teacher instead of a monk? I find Upasaka to be effective in spreading the Dhamma in places lacking Sangha's knowledge about Buddhism. Yeah, the only thing about being a monk is the accountability. There's some sense of accountability. And it's it's artificial. They're very bad monks, very, very bad monks. They're very good lay people who are very good at teaching the Dhamma. But by and large, there is something uh, good about the monastic state. You know, you've done something. It's not a core thing, but it's a thing. You've trained, you've disciplined, you've made a commitment of some sort. No, it's not sure how well you're keeping that commitment, but you've made the commitment. So it's like maybe we can relate it to police officers. And it's maybe a good comparison because police officers, I see especially in America, are getting a very bad reputation these days and are, are coming up against a lot of hostility. So I'm not going to defend being a police, in fact, quite the opposite. Being a monk can be meaningless, can be harmful. Monks can become very proud, uh, very entitled, very complacent. But at the core of it, there is the, the only point of being a monk or being a police officer is that there is something official about it. Well, police officers, there's a whole other baggage there, but let's say a soldier maybe. 
Suppose you're in a war zone and you see someone coming at you with a gun, coming towards you with a gun. Well, if they have a soldier's uniform on, you take them a little more seriously. Maybe it's like the army versus a trained militia. I don't know. So, but that's, I don't mean that to mean very much. It's not a very important thing. It's something to acknowledge. Something we shouldn't dismiss, shouldn't trivialize, but it's not the be all end all. I think practically speaking, you do sometimes get a little bit of. It can be problematic when. Lay teachers say things like the monastic lineage is not important or try to trivialize it, and we shouldn't do that. We have to respect and, and not to ring my own bell, but I mean, I don't, I object, trying to be as objective as possible. I became a monk because I, I believe this that the monastic, li monastic life is useful, it's beneficial. And it's a good thing for someone who wants to be a teacher. Not, not that you should want such a thing. For someone inclined to, to help others, let's say. So for someone doing, inclined to help themselves. I mean, there's a good point that you make that, practically speaking, it can become harder to help people as a monk. But that's, I think, useful and purposeful because it limited, limits the scope of the help that you give. See, as a layperson, you're engaging with so many more people, so you end up having to help people with much less uh, commitment to the practice. And you end up using expending a lot more energy than a monk would. As a monk, we're privileged to be removed from society somewhat so that the people who come and find us are the ones that are very serious. And so there actually is often a better quality of results. I mean, not only does it filter, but it also conditions the students. The students become more respectful. Just having a, 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 a uniform makes people more respectful. And that's not for for the good of the teacher that's for the good of the student why we push for respect so much is because if you're not respectful there's there's very little hope that you're going to gain much that you're going to put your heart into it so having a monastery having traditions and culture and uniforms and so on is very much a, a, a practical part of conditioning people to be respectful and to take things seriously. There's a certain sort of haphazardness toward uh, relating to the lay tradition, right? Because there are very there are fewer rules, regulations, framework, boundaries, that sort of thing. So it's very easy, easy much easier, much easier for. Uh, or what's the word? Perversion. I want to say perversions, but we don't use that word in English. For for things to get off track, wrong teachings to crop up, teachings that go against Buddhism. You 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 hear from time to time of of traditions where the teacher uh, doesn't require people to keep the five precepts, where they drink alcohol during meditation courses, after meditation courses. That sort of thing. I mean, it, it could happen with monks, but it's much less likely because there's a higher level, generally, of uh, oversight. They're much more in the public eye. Where would I seek guidance as a Canadian in Buddhism 
are there any good places to go or even websites to check out? I'm newer to Buddhism and I'm trying to figure things out more. Well, you could check out our website. We're in, we're in Canada. We're in Niagara Falls, Canada. I don't know if you were aware of that. It's a strange question to ask of me because we're really promoting ourselves as that sort of thing. Not promoting so much as uh, presenting ourselves as such a thing. Hey, we have a website. We have a place. We provide guidance. So, I mean, apart from this place... There are other places, I mean really any place that has some teachings could be valuable. If you're, if you're looking for specific guidance, maybe I can help, but another a big problem with that is I don't have much familiarity with such places, so how could I how could I recommend them if I've never been there or don't have any connection with them? I guess if a place were prom promoting itself or presenting itself as teaching in our tradition, then I would say, well, that's a good sign from my perspective, something I can confirm as being probably a good thing. But it still very much depends on the people and the place. Sometimes I find myself telling people what to do. How do I know it and be mindful about it? Well, a big part of that is the arrogance which we have that we know the truth, that we know better. It's such a dangerous and poisonous thing to believe you know better than someone or to, not not even that, but to believe in the need to change people, to believe in the right to change people. This, this sort of, it's not always arrogance, but there is an arrogance that leads you there. That you have a right, that it's right to tell other people what to do. And arrogance is a difficult one. It requires humility as its counter. And humility is not something easy to develop. Humility requires requires you to see how how worthless you are how, how worthless we are worthless we have no worth we have no value there's nothing valuable in the body or the mind it's not to say they're bad things that it's not really about being bad it's just that when we give worth to things then we prize it over something else and we identify with it, right? This is me, this is mine. When we value things negatively, the same thing happens. And it often leads to the other, to the opposite. When we have low self-esteem, we often find ourselves reacting by trying to bring others down. Telling others what to do can often come from low self-esteem. Ultimately, it comes from from attachment to self, that it's somehow right to tell others what to do. You can't attack it really and really directly. You have to overcome the attachment to self. Like all problems, you can't fix them. So you don't really, it's not really about noting and be mind, being mindful of it, because you can do that. I could tell you how to be mindful and note it. But you're going to be discouraged because that doesn't solve the problem. The problem is solved by 
systematic noting, systematic mindfulness of everything because it changes your perspective. Mindfulness doesn't stop the thing you're being mindful of. It helps you see more clearly which changes your perspective and changing your perspective changes the things you do. Changes the sort of things you're capable of, inclined towards. Alright, we're down to the crunch, it's 9 o'clock. Are there any important questions where we can say, oh, this person needs an answer to this question. It will really help their practice if they get an answer. Um, I think not, not specifically about the practice. There's still a lot of questions, but... Alright. There's also a lot of chatting in the chat box. I'm not sure. I, I, I like to think that would not encourage chatting because we want this to be a meditation session so I guess I know it's the internet and we can't keep people from chatting anyway thank you sadhu everyone good questions appreciate it I wish you all peace happiness and freedom from suffering